Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Fabrizio Cariani, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Northwestern University, and he is here to share with us some of his thoughts about arts. Fabrizio Cariani, welcome. Thank you, Matt. So there's a lot of work being done in philosophy right now on the meaning of the word ought. You might think that's a lot of effort to just to put into one little word. Why is it so difficult to say what the word ought means? Well, that's a great question. There are basically three reasons, I think, maybe more than three, but at least three reasons for that. One of them is that it's an extremely flexible word. So you can say something like, it ought to rain tomorrow. You can say, there ought not to be wars, or Jill ought to stay at home. All of these sentences use the word ought but they seem to use it in very different ways. So, it ought to rain tomorrow seems to make a prediction. Philosophers have taken to calling this uh, the epistemic interpretation of ought. There ought not to be wars, and uh, Jill ought to stay at home seem to have to do with how things ideally would be. So, there wouldn't be wars if things were ideal, or if Jill was doing what she's required, she would stay at home. Now, there's all this variety of meanings or variety of possible meanings. And uh, sort of stunningly, though, in each particular context, the word seems to acquire a very precise meaning. And so there is this tension between, on the one side, this very great range of possible meanings, and on the other side, the fact that we somehow always manage to latch on one specific way of understanding what the word means. Another thing that's a little difficult with art is that uh, one of the meanings that it can have seems to be tied to morality. So if I tell you, Matt, you are not to tell lies, that seems to say that you're under some kind of moral imperative not to tell lies. And that means that uh, a discussion of the meaning of art carries with it very difficult questions about how we give a theory of moral discourse and moral communication. So all of this, I think, are reasons to think that art is a very difficult word to understand. Okay, so we have these sort of different senses of the word art. We have uh, what philosophers have called the deontic reading of art, which has to do with, you know, saying that like one possibility is better than another possibility or something like that, maybe. Or, you know, some state of affairs is ideal, uh, maybe even moral. And then we have this other sense of the word art that philosophers have called epistemic, which has more to do with saying something about what you know or your state of knowledge at the time and what seems to follow from your state of knowledge at the time. So are these just two completely different words that happen to sound the same? Um, Are they just sort of like homonyms? Or is there a unified meaning that the word ought has across all these different cases? Thanks, Matt, for introducing the term deontic. As you say, the deontic interpretations of ought are those interpretations that have to do with requirements and obligations what would be better for people to do. 
as you also rightly point out, there are two views about the meanings of what. Uh, on one view, there is just one meaning with different contextual resolutions. And uh, on the other view, there are distinct meanings. Now, I think it would be nice if the one meaning uh, view was true. And uh, I think especially Angelika Kratzer has given us the resources to see how that might even be possible. So Kratzer suggests thinking of models in general, but maybe art in particular, as having a structure like in view of what we know, in view of what is prescribed by uh, your requirement, something and something ought to be the case. So for example, it ought to rain tomorrow, the epistemic reading, it could be understood as saying it follows from what we know that it will rain tomorrow. Similarly, Jill ought to stay at home could be understood as saying it follows from what Jill is required to do, uh, that she will stay at home. And that is a very nice way of trying to capture a dimension of unity between these two different interpretations and also capture what seems to be the dimension of variability, the dimension of difference between the two readings. Now, I think historically this was sort of great unifying progress, but uh, after this paradigm has become so central and so important, people have started to pay attention to cases that put a little bit of pressure on this paradigm. Let's just put it this way. And so if you think that there are reasons to worry about the paradigm, then that reopens the question of whether we think there are two meanings or whether there is only one meaning for the expression. So at first I thought these two uses of the word ought were completely different. But uh, I think I see where this uh, unifying definition is going. You know, it's saying that, uh, you know, given some background set of assumptions, something or other follows. That's kind of the, the core uh, that unites both senses of the word ought that we've been discussing. So when we say Jill ought to stay at home, we're saying that her staying home is a consequence of following some set of rules. And when we say it ought to rain tomorrow, we're saying that it's raining tomorrow is a consequence of everything we know, something like that. So that's actually starting to sound kind of persuasive. Um, what are the problems with this picture? Well, very good. There is actually a very large array of arguments that try to show that uh, they're different. Here's one that I like. It may or may not be the most persuasive, but it's one that's very easy to introduce. So many people think that uh, ought, both in the deontic and then the epistemic interpretation, has something to do with probability. Right? Now, for example, when I say it ought to rain tomorrow, that seems to be roughly synonymous with it will probably rain tomorrow. Now, it doesn't exactly mean the same thing, but it seems to be roughly similar. Similarly, also, Jill ought to stay at home could be understood as uh, meaning something that involves probability. Perhaps that uh, Jill's goals, whatever they may be, maybe staying healthy, are made probable or made importantly more probable than the alternatives from her staying at home. So if that's the correct way of thinking about it, you now have this other element of union between the two, which is they both have to do with probability, but notice what I just did. It seems that uh, in the one case, the probability goes in one direction, right? So when I say it ought to rain tomorrow, I'm talking about the probability that it will rain tomorrow given our evidence. Whereas uh, in the other case, I'm interested in, so when I was talking about Jill ought to stay at home, I just glossed it as having to do with the probability of various goals given that she stays at home, right? 
Now, I don't know if uh, your listeners are keeping score at home, but uh, those two probabilities do not go in the same direction. So, in one case, we are interested in the probability of the proposition that's inside the ought. So, in the epistemic case, we're interested in the probability of it will rain tomorrow, given our evidence. In the other case, we're interested in the probability of the gold, given that Jill stays at home. Now, that seems to be a dimension of difference. It's not the only dimension of difference, by the way, that people talk about. There is, in fact, a long history, first in philosophy, and then now even in some corners of linguistics, about distinguishing so-called ought-to-be's from ought-to-do's, where the idea is uh, we should draw a meaningful distinction between when we talk about how things ought to be and when we talk about what somebody ought to do. There is, in fact, even a fairly recent paper by Mark Schroeder who argues that uh, the grammar of these two expressions is not even the same, that uh, if you study carefully data about how English encodes the grammatical property of ought, when we talk about something like ought to be, we need a different grammar from when we talk about something like ought to do. That would be a staggering case for uh, the thesis that uh, there are distinct meanings of ought. In fact, not only are there distinct meanings, but there are actually words with uh, different grammatical categories. I'm not suggesting that either of these two cases I've just mentioned, or even the other ones that are discussed in the literature, are necessarily decisive. I think what's very interesting is to take each of these cases one by one and see if an answer can be developed on behalf of somebody who maintains that there is a unitary analysis of art. Now, interestingly, we also do not need to be necessarily committed to the thesis that the unitary analysis of art is going to be the Kratzer analysis that we described a bit earlier in the podcast. It could be something else. As long as there is some kind of unitary analysis that works, the unitary thesis may survive. So we should also distinguish the specific prospects of the Kratzer analysis, to which we haven't yet done very much justice to in this conversation, but also the more general prospects of the view that the meaning of the epistemic and the ontic odd are roughly the same. Another topic that a lot of philosophers have been interested in is the difference between the words ought and must, which, you know, when you think about it for five seconds, it seems like they're kind of synonymous, both can be used in both of these deontic and epistemic senses. But uh, what are some of the differences between the word ought and the word must? Because there's also some difference in meaning there. There there indeed are. Uh, It's very interesting because must, like ought, has this profile in which it can have epistemic and deontic interpretation. So you can say, Joe must be at the opera. And that, in fact, that very sentence in this case can both express your certainty that Joe is at the opera and, uh, on the other hand, on the deontic interpretation, a command that Joe be at the opera. Perhaps we, if we're saying the command, we would use a slightly different verb. Maybe we would say something like, Joe must go to the opera. But still, must replicate some of this very same behavior of ought. But there's very important differences, and um, one of them that was uh, discussed in a paper by a few years ago by Dilip Ninan is that... Uh, it seems that with must, you cannot say things like, you must go to church, but I know that you won't. Whereas uh, with ought, you can say things like, you ought to go to church, but I know that you won't. So that's one difference. 
Another difference that actually strikes me as also very interesting that is much less discussed in the literature. Art seems to express a comparison and uh, maybe must does not express a comparison in the same way. So here's a couple of examples that can get you thinking about this. So suppose that there are two coffee machines in your building. There is the east machine and then there is the west machine. The east machine never jams. And the west machine jams 40% of the time. So 60% of the time when you go to the west machine you can have coffee and 40% of the time it gets stuck, no coffee for you. Now consider this pair of judgments. The first judgment is to get coffee you ought to use the east machine. Well that seems right. The east machine is the one that doesn't jam. Uh, now contrast that with uh, to get coffee you must use the east machine. We're sort of tempted to say that's not right. There is a chance to get coffee in the other machine as well. That seems to suggest that there is some kind of contrast between these two expressions. And now the question for the theorist is to try to account for where this contrast comes from. And uh, one hypothesis which I'm actually kind of attracted to is the hypothesis that odd means something like better, or odd expresses a comparison between different alternatives. So when I say to get coffee, you ought to use the East machine, what I mean is that given that your goal is to get coffee, it's better for you to use the East machine rather than the West machine. Must does not mean something like better. Must means like the only way in which you can get coffee is by going to the East machine. And that is not true because there is at least one salient way of getting coffee that involves not going to the East machine, namely going to the West machine. So that has led me at least to the conjecture that uh, me and others, I should say, to the conjecture that uh, art is, as we say, contrastive in the sense that art has to do with comparisons of alternatives. And perhaps you could think, well, the alternatives in the deontic interpretations, they're ranked by some uh, notion of betterness. So when I say that Jill ought to stay at home, what I mean is that it would be better if Jill stayed at home than if she went to school. But the very same idea of comparison of alternatives can also apply to, in some sense, to the epistemic interpretations, except that now the comparison is no longer based on betterness, but it's based on perhaps comparative probability. So when I say it ought to rain tomorrow, what I mean is that it's more probable that it will rain tomorrow than it is that it won't rain. I find that kind of approach to concepts ought and must quite promising. So part of the idea behind this contrastivist account of the meaning of the word ought is that when I say stuff like Jill ought to be at home, that is evaluated relative to a set of background assumptions about what the alternatives to her being home are. So in a way, what we're saying is that these sentences are very sensitive to people's background assumptions when they're conversing, to the conversational context, in other words. Yeah, these statements are very, they're context dependent. What would be an example of two different contexts where Jill ought to be at home kind of means something different because the alternatives we're considering are different? Consider a sentence like, John ought to take the bus to go to school. Right? Now, here's one context. You may think that John ought to take the bus because it's the most eco-friendly way of getting to school. It's better than driving to school. So in that sense, when the sort of contextually salient alternative is driving, John ought to take the bus rather than driving. But uh, perhaps in some other context, we also 
consider for John the option of uh, biking to school. Now, perhaps we think that's even better. That's uh, both eco-friendly and uh, helps his fitness. So in a context in which we intend to compare the option of taking the bus with biking, maybe it's no longer true that John ought to take the bus. In fact, English even gives us the tools to make this kind of relativization explicit. So in English, we have the rather than expression, and somebody can actually totally consistently say, John ought to take the bus rather than drive, but he ought to bike rather than take the bus. This is a perfectly acceptable way of expressing yourself in English, and it's a way which drives out explicitly the alternatives. One objection that I get sometimes when I present this kind of view is this. I don't care about what I ought to do relative to this or to that alternative. I want to know, what should I do? What ought I to do? Now, that's a very interesting question, of course. But I'm suggesting that it's not up to the model for the language to answer this question. It's a question that maybe it's up to ethicists if we're talking about moral discourse. It's up to the decision theorists if we're talking about non-moral context in which we want to talk about what people should do. It's not in general a question that has necessarily too much to do with the meaning of the expression. It has to do with what are the actual alternatives that I'm going to consider as salient in a given context. Yeah, that's interesting. So what we're saying is that when we're figuring out whether we ought to do something or whether we ought not to do something, there's kind of two things happening, two sorts of processes going on. One is we're figuring out something like, you know, what our strategy should be given some set of alternatives. What strategy should we pursue? Maybe that's one part of what we're doing. But then another part of what we're doing is sort of parsing the meaning of the word ought. And just the sort of linguistic part of that deliberative process shouldn't say anything one way or the other about what the best strategy for you know, resolving conflicts in our lives is or something. Yes, I think that is correct. I sometimes get hit for this kind of view. But I think it's the right way of uh, dividing up the labor between the philosopher of language and uh, somebody who is more substantively engaged with, for example, practical rationality or morality in general. I think especially for those who want to stick to a view on which epistemic and deontic readings mean the same thing, we will want actually the meaning of the expression to be something rather thin that then can be filled out in various ways in each particular context. So I think this is a useful methodological hypothesis. It may well turn out that it's impossible to maintain it. So what th- my ultimate commitment to this hypothesis is for the end of times. Right now it's a little too early to figure out whether uh, I want to really sign up for it. But I think it's a, it's a valuable way of seeing the distinction between the philosopher of language and those theorists who are engaged in a more substantive account of what we ought to do. A certain phase of 20th century philosophy, I think, is kind of famous for wanting to collapse some of these questions, for saying that, no, if we want to learn about the nature of obligation, then what we should do is study the meaning of the word ought or study the meaning of the word good or something like that. And likewise for other things as well. So would it be fair to say that part of what you're trying to do is take a sober step back from this kind of collapsing of these two different enterprises? I think so. I think there are very substantive questions about moral discourse. And I think there are substantive questions of philosophy of language about moral discourse. That Nothing like that is incompatible with my view. But I also think that uh, 
when we go about developing a theory of the meaning of these expressions, it's very useful to start from a very skeletal, very flexible account of what the meaning is. Now, this is the kind of methodological starting point for which it's actually very hard to give arguments. So it seems to me that the best way of approaching this kind of question is let's develop as many different views as we can. So I'm very open to the idea that somebody could try to tackle this project from a different kind of methodological stance. So perhaps somebody would want to say, ought means something very specific, and maybe it's captured by, let's say, some version of decision theory. Now, that is possible, and I'm not opposed to these kind of views, except given my methodological commitments. But uh, perhaps the best way of engaging in a comparison of these kinds of theories is to let each kind of theories develop their theory, and once we have a complete package of our stories about language, sort of trade notes and see who has the most explanatory or the most useful package to explain human communication in general. That seems like a fruitful approach. I think this comes a little bit from recognizing that it's going to be very difficult for me to refute the alternative view, to say that you can't at all develop a semantics about that uh, incorporates some substantial assumptions. I think it's going to be both very difficult to refute that hypothesis, but also to prove it. So it strikes me that the best way of going about this in this kind of situation is to develop each of the views separately and see how far we can go. Why do you think it's important to study the meaning of words like ought or should or must or may or can, these words that philosophers call modals? You know, what do we have to gain sort of philosophically from this? I mean, because we've just said that a semantics for the word ought is neutral with respect to various theories you might have about what's the best strategy to pursue when. What's the overall import or upshot of these questions we've been asking? Well, so there are two aspects, I think, of uh, a good answer to this question. One question is, why is modality interesting? The other question is, uh, why is modality interesting to the study of natural language? And I think both of these questions have pretty interesting answers. So in general, modality is interesting both because it does a lot of philosophical work. So oftentimes there's concepts that we would want to define in terms of other modal concepts. So maybe there are concepts that we want to define in terms of necessity or possibility and so on. But more simply, in sort of everyday life, I think modality is about state of the world that are not the actual state of the world. And uh, A lot of times, such states are very interesting to, for example, to ascribe responsibility when we evaluate whether or somebody did or did not do the right thing. We think, well, what were the alternatives? Or what were the alternative possible outcomes? So were they just, for example, lucky that uh, none of the bad consequences of their actions materialized? So I think a lot of our everyday thought and talk has to do with states of the world that are not the actual state of the world. In fact, if you ever listen to a baseball game, all that the announcers talk about is uh, what would have happened had this person maybe put the ball in play at this point, or what can this person do? What, uh, and uh, it's extremely interesting how actually pervasive talk that involves modal concepts is for us. Now, having given you that very generic answer, there is also a much more specific answer to why modality is sort of an interesting linguistic category. The specific answer is that we philosophers of language and logicians and semanticists 
we have studied extensively a bunch of expressions like the connectives, like negation, conjunction, disjunction, and what logicians call the quantifiers, so like every and some and no and so on. And uh, once you have a theory of how these bits of language work, sort of the next low-hanging fruit seem to be modality. So it seems very natural to think that the very same sets of resources, maybe with some extra additions, but very similar sets of resources are going to be helpful to understand our talk involving necessity and possibility and uh, obligation and permission and prohibitions. So it seems to be a low-hanging fruit. That's one uh, uh, sort of instrumental reason or maybe a cheap reason to like it. On the other hand, however, another thing that makes model discourse very interesting is that it introduces new data involving the old bits of discourse that we were interested in. So very famously, modality and disjunction interact in extremely interesting ways. So there's intuitions and judgments about disjunction that we can only drive out if we are considering a fragment of language that includes modality. So famously, if I tell you uh, you may have ice cream or cake, I somehow managed to communicate that you may have ice cream and you may have cake. This is uh, known as the problem of free choice permission. That's a datum that's as much about disjunction as it is about modality. It's a datum that we only really have available once we consider a bit of language that has both disjunction and modality. So for that reason, I think this is both an extremely interesting conceptual category, but also one that's very important for our understanding of language, even the bits of language that we think we understand before we consider modal discourse. Fabrizio Cariani, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, Thank you, Matt. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening.